Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Toby Perkins, the Shadow Minister for Apprenticeships and Lifelong Learning. We don't really talk about his brief. Toby is a massive football fan, a massive England fan. In fact, I've been to an England game with Toby before we went to watch England play Russia in Euro 2016. So this really is two guys talking about England's exit from the Euros. I say exit, losing in the final. And just the political forces around that in the aftermath and in the build-up, what they mean for Labour, what they mean for England. I mean, a lot of the time, I'll be honest with you, I'm just rambling in this. And um, obviously I haven't put a podcast out for a couple of weeks um, for a number of reasons, but as many regular listeners will know, um, I am a massive football fan and uh, I've always supported England, even when many football fans, many friends of mine, fell out of love with them around the time of the so-called golden generation when they were quite hard to support. I always flew the flag, always believed. And obviously this summer has been, in a way, the summer that I always dreamed I would have. I always wanted to see us get to a final. I've always believed that one way we'd do it. I always believed that one day we'd win something and obviously that still hasn't happened. But <laughs> can't tell you the thrill of seeing them walk out um, at, at Wembley. I was very lucky to be there. I was very lucky to go to all of England's games at Wembley in this tournament um, through a variety of people. And I should say the kindness of strangers because I had tickets, me and some friends had tickets for various games. We lost them when the capacity was reduced, but I was just so desperate to go. When I first moved to London as a child, I was just desperate to go to Wembley. I never got to see Forrest play there, very sadly. And I just made a vow to myself that when I moved down here, I would go to Wembley as often as possible. And I've been, I feel like I've been to 100 games at Wembley over the years. Friendlies, qualifiers, Nation League games, just literally anything. I'll go and watch England play in any game. Nothing, obviously, has come close to the atmosphere, particularly in those last three games, the Germany game, the Denmark game, and the Italy game. And even in the three group games where the capacity was hugely reduced, it was just still so brilliant to see them actually play in a tournament there. And um, I, I was able to get tickets through good people who saw me them at face value most of the time. Um, and, and friends who, who had spares and uh, it's just been wonderful. But I know a lot of you probably listened to perhaps the show's respite from football. So I'm sorry that football has crept in, as it sometimes does. And obviously, if you're not a fan of England, regardless of where you're from in Britain or the wider world, then... Um, I still think you'll understand what it's like to, to feel that pain of uh, having a dream come so close. But my God, it was just wonderful. And just what, and, and also just so great because obviously as someone who's um, politics are fairly liberal, you know, uh, football authorities and certainly England managers haven't always, uh, and England in many respects, hasn't always at a football level felt like it really understood its responsibility, um, given the way that some of its fans behaved over the years. And finally, we have a team that uh, has a manager that is really articulate, that is thoughtful, that is considerate, that speaks up in a very respectful way, and a team that I've joined in with the global movement of taking a knee before games. And I just thought that was such a special thing that that team got to the final and almost won it. It's just so cool. Um, and obviously there's a whole load of other stuff, negative stuff around fans' behaviour at games. Um, I'll talk about this with Toby. Uh, have to say, I mean, I, I, thought it, I think it's appalling to boo your own team. Uh, I've never done it. 
at any game in any situation. I've seen Forrest play, seen us get relegated to the third division. Never booed my own team. To boo your own team before kickoff is incredible. And I know there are people out there that say, oh, they're booing a Marxist thing. Well, England constantly said it wasn't about Marxism. They always said this was about just a simple gesture of combating racial inequality. Why so many people refuse to listen to them, refuse to believe their own players, their own stars, I will never understand. And for those of you that might be tempted to say, well, you know, I understand why people boo the knee. I have to tell you this. The people that I saw at Wembley booing the knee, who were absolutely in the minority, but nevertheless, weren't libertarian uh, intelligentsia. They were yobs, every single one of them. And a lot of the people in that group are scary individuals. You should not go to a football match and feel scared. You shouldn't sit there thinking, well, I hope there's enough security at this game. Now, I have to say, <laughs> the vast majority of England fans at every game I went to were, were lovely. And I, I guess that doesn't need saying. But nevertheless, normal people going to watch football with, you know, a kind of the crazy dream that we might win something and all the exuberance and fun that goes with it. The vast majority. But that hardcore are petrifying. And I thought if I'd been at that game with a child, I, I, I think it would have put them off ever going again. And uh, I didn't see any trouble at the final or the semi-final, but the, the people that I saw, some of those games that were the hardcore element are the scariest people you will ever come face to face with. And they don't belong in a football stadium. They should never be allowed in. I don't know exactly how you police that. And I talked to Toby about this, about, how you know what is the right level of uh, policing at these games, and um, how you know, it's just so. The problem is, it then just becomes how do you basically put them off going in the end? Uh, and I just hope the more that England show themselves to be a progressive force, the more these people are repelled. Um, but that is a, that is possibly a conversation for a football podcast or something else. But these things are political. They're not party political, but these are issues about, not just about racism and, and, and that, uh, you know, important things that we should take a stand on and support people who take a stand on, but about individuals and their behaviour and what they're accountable for, particularly when they're in, uh, you know, shared spaces. Um, so anyway, I realise this is just, I feel like I just needed someone to talk to about it. So there you go. Um, Anyway, I talk about, because I'm still in a state of flux, as I'm sure if you're bothered about England doing well at football, you are too, just trying to make sense of the fact that obviously getting to the final is a huge mark of success, particularly when it's been so rare. It's only the second final we've ever been in for the men. Um, and, uh, but, you know, there's always that part of you that just goes, oh my God, we're so close. What if, what if, what if, but... What a ride. What a wonderful ride. Um, I began by asking Toby Perkins, who should be reminded, this is a political podcast and I'm talking to a Labour politician. I began by asking Toby how he felt two days later. Well, my son put it rather yesterday, he said it was the most Monday, Monday-ish Monday we've ever had. You know, I think... You wake up and you just sort of feel like, oh, it really did happen. And and it's such, you know, England losing on penalties is such a cliche, isn't it? 
and then for us to kind of go from uh, the, the heartbreaking defeat to the sort of straight into the you know, despicable racism that some people on the, uh, on the internet had directed towards uh, some of our black players and, and the whole sort of debate about what it means about England. It, you know, just like um, when there was fighting after the 96 Euro semi-final, it, you just sort of go from that moment having felt really proud of your country and the way that I feel this team has sort of epitomised England that I recognise as as my home and what I'm proud of, into, you know, all of those things that, that we're sort of talking about prior to this tournament. And, and so I think there was a real sort of magical moment over the course of the last four or five weeks. Um, and it, that feels a lot more than 48 hours ago, frankly. So uh, I think Cold Cup um, feeling very down about the result. I'm sure that the positivity... Uh, of what the team achieved will kick in, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, and I think, uh, I also honestly, as a full fan, I think it was a massive, massive missed opportunity. Um, we'll maybe talk about that in more detail, but I, I guess that was was how I'm feeling right now. I, I suppose you're right. It's just, we've never lost in a final before because we've never been out our lives, never been to one. So it was a, a wonderful to get that far and for that final to be in England for some of the games to have been at Wembley, all bar one of our games were there. So it did kind of have that Euro 96 feel at Wembley, at least anyway. I mean, obviously, the difference is with the tournaments we've hosted before is that the whole country gets to experience it because you have games in Leeds and Nottingham and Newcastle and Manchester and everywhere else. But the, you immediately go from, oh, my God, that we've achieved this massive thing. We're watching England walk out at a final in England. This, you know, this young, diverse team that have taken the knee before every game when other countries haven't really led the way, a really progressive manager that really we've never had before who speaks out on social issues so well. And then not only do you lose, but the moment you lose, there begins this intense national focus that, not that we don't need it, but it goes from the magic of a football tournament to immediately, oh my God, what is wrong with this country? And it's such a weird, it's almost like the spell has been lifted because obviously those issues have been present throughout the tournament. We've talked about a minority of England fans booing the knee before games, which is insane. But somehow it kind of was still, the show was sort of still on the road. Whereas now that the reflection begins and I just think the more I read, the gloomier I get. And I, I find it really hard to settle on an opinion. I can't actually figure out how I feel about the whole thing yet. I'm still slightly in a state of flux. I don't know if you've been able to think about it perhaps more clearly than I have. Well, no, as, as I just reflected, you know, I think all of those uh, kind of contradictions have been present through uh, the whole the whole tournament. I mean, I went to the semi-final and, and I came away feeling that it had been a, a really sort of magical experience and, and I felt there was a real joy there, but I didn't get a sense of kind of the aggression you know, and, and obviously there was a terrible incident with the Danish family getting attacked afterwards. Um, but in, in general, my experience of that semi-final was the, the kind of the joy of, of the way that the country felt and the, the team were playing was, was reflected around the ground. And, you know, obviously when, you know, a lot of the sort of damaging uh, stuff came uh, prior to the game, and that 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 was to do with 
people trying to get into the stadium and, and fighting between fans who had tickets and, and didn't and uh, all of that sort of side of it. And, and then, you know, I mean, I think the vast, vast majority of people in this country um, were massively supportive of all of our team and of what they stood for. But of course, with the social media era, you only need, you know, a certain number uh, of voices to uh, disgrace themselves. And, and, you know, racism shouldn't be swept under the carpet anyway. The whole taking a, a knee um, gesture was about uh, trying to bring scrutiny to, to the fact that this is still a problem, despite all the change we've had uh, in the sort of 30 or 40 years I've been watching football. Um, but you do sort of feel like a moment's been lost as well because there was a way in which this team was bringing us together. And if actually what we do is, is all kind of turn on those um, who, those racists uh, and, and then get into the sort of, oh, should a footballer um, be, you know, directly addressing the Home Secretary? And, and we, you know, it was all into that division all over again. So it, it's a difficult moment. I think the response that we've seen around the uh, Mashford, uh, Marcus Rashford mural up in Manchester and, and the fact that after it was uh, uh, it was damaged, there was this huge outpouring of people turning up and, and reclaiming it. I mean, that, that was pretty magical. Uh, and, I, you know, in the end, I will reflect on all this uh, as a really positive moment in our country's history and a moment... Um, when the country really, really needed a lift. I think we, this team has given us one. Um, but I think, you know, we also will probably look back on it as, as a, a massive missed opportunity as well. It's interesting that you didn't um, experience any sort of nastiness at the semi-final. So I went to every England game at Wembley during this tournament. I got not to brag. <laughs> I managed to get tickets for a variety of the, you know, bought them off various people on the internet and just did everything I could to try and get to those games. What I found really odd was in the first three games where there was a hugely reduced capacity, the booing was so much more noticeable that that hardcore were disproportionately represented in a, in a crowd of 20,000. And as the capacity grew at the Germany, at the Denmark and at the Italy games, I couldn't hear any booing at, at all. Um, so if it was happening, it was being drowned out, if it was happening at all. But in those three games, it was really noticeable, even though it was a minority, the vast majority. And we've been to an England game before. We went to um, watch England play Russia in Euro 2016 in Marseille, which was another notorious flashpoint for England fans abroad. We obviously didn't see any of the violence where we were. There were thousands of England fans just behaving normally, as, as normal people do, having a beer. And you just think, actually, the vast majority of England fans are normal people. And actually, one thing that doesn't really get talked about, and why would it, is that actually a lot of football fans are actually quite genteel. Like, uh, most England fans are kind of like, it's almost like going to the cricket. They're, they're kind of, everyone thinks the football fans are yob, and, and then they're, and they're, they're not. A minority is, and I mean, the way I would think about it is, I think the vast majority is just normal people, but there is a, I'm not even sure if 10% is the right thing, but it feels like it's about 10% are not just jobs, they're deeply dangerous people and they are really scary and they shouldn't be allowed to go to football matches. And even at that Croatia game, there were some people around that were just, they shouldn't be allowed into stadiums if they're that drunk or on drugs. And they clearly were one of the two. I think a lot of it, I mean, is it too simple to just say, these events should be policed better 
and those people should be turned around at the turnstiles. If, if they give any trouble, then we should have more police there. And actually, that would go a long way to solving the, the problems. They wouldn't be in the stadium to boo them in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, <clears throat> the sort of the booing and the, uh, and the violence are two, two different issues. Um, I mean, there clearly is a, a, a significant sort of minority, but uh, a numerous enough minority um, that follow England in, intent on trouble that, that you know, cause a, a major issue. And, and there's very significant um, and pretty draconian measures in place that the police are able to cope on. Um, to keep those people away from games with foot banning orders and, and uh, other such um, measures. Uh, so there are specific, you know, specific roles for the police to ban people attending to football matches in a way that doesn't exist in law for almost anything else. Um, so I, I think it's important to, to remember, you know, I, if you get into a situation with an overstretched police force and you're having to, you know, massively police the entrance to, to games, yeah, that, that, that poses serious questions and, and challenges for the football authorities too. You know, we can't have a situation where because uh, a football match is on, you know, whole communities aren't getting any kind of police themselves. Because obviously there's a need in every town and city when there's a game on for policing because, you know, the, the, where there's events that get uh, massive people together and alcohol you, you will end up having public order issues in those local areas as well. So, yeah, there is a, I mean, I think there definitely are questions around the policing uh, at Wembley on the final, um, but the responsibility you know, falls on those people who attempted to get into the game without a ticket, with all of the dangers that we know are associated with that. Um, and, you know, I've heard of some of the tales of people turning up the video that sort of replicated the uh, the app that you had to have on your phone in order to get you you aim for tickets and they were able to get past the initial guards with those, um, uh, you know I, I, there's no point being in denial about the level of issues that there are surrounding England games or you know the nationalistic element there is that supporting them, but you're absolutely right the vast majority of supporters are, are there for the right reasons. I just wonder as well, I, I thought Gareth Southgate was so tactful in the way, certainly in the games before the final, at the start of the tournament where England put out that great video about why they take the knee and why they don't want it to be booed. Obviously, the vast majority of the country and the supporters inside the stadium agreed. Um, and he used a form of words in one of the press conferences, uh, which I thought was really smart. He said, I, I think some people perhaps you know, haven't understood the message yet. And he's been really tactful in just saying... We're trying to bring you along and using very kind of gentle words, almost trying to sort of nudge that minority towards getting it. I wonder now if the messaging needs to become a lot harder and England say, we actively do not want you there. But what what can you do beyond that? Because if, if like you say, uh, you know, over-policing football stadiums means that you leave resources scant elsewhere... So on the day of a football match, you know, every criminal in that town knows you can get up to no good and there's, a, you know, the likelihood that the police arrive is, is vastly reduced. You've got England uh, having quite a strong message, but even if they hardened the message and said, you're not welcome, how else actually do you stop these people going to football matches? Well, I think when people break the law, that, that's what the fo football banning orders exist for. So, so there are offences that are related 
Goes to football, things that you're not allowed to do at a football match. If you did them elsewhere in in uh, society, they'd be allowed. Um, and the, the kind of punishment for that is banning from football games. So, I mean, I think we have legislation in place. I think when it comes to things like booing the uh, the taking, well, you know, I I, I totally support the gesture of, of taking the knee. I support all that it stands for. But I think, you know, we probably need to be a bit careful before we actually start making booing illegal or anything like that. Um, the very fact that a minority booed enabled the, uh, and forced the sort of discussion about what the gesture meant. It, 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 the majority of people um, supported the gesture and it enabled there to be a discussion about these things. I don't necessarily think in itself that that is uh, a bad thing. I don't think we should ever kid ourselves. We have absolute uniformity of view on all of these matters. But the gesture that the footballers made, the statement they put out uh, alongside it, the uh, highlighting of this issue by those people booing it, and then the response to that, you know, I think was a, a pretty positive public education exercise in all, all of these issues. So, you know, in terms of that regard, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's reasonable. One of the things I really regret is that all of the attention now is on that and, and yeah. we've lost um, that sort of uh, discussion about what we, what's actually been achieved on the football pitch by a team who's gone further than any other team uh, in history by the 1966 uh, uh, team. There are also other political elements around all this, aren't there? That, that people anyway... On the on on the on the so-called more progressive wing of politics, perhaps have always had an issue around the St George's Cross supporting England. You know, they feel that oh God, you know, if you if you become too vocal a supporter of England as a football fan, it must mean that you're sort of like bordering on joining the EDL or something like that. You know, the the English national identity as a political thing is. I feel that sometimes people on the progressive wing in the Labour Party kind of shy away from dealing with it, from thinking of it. They, they, they're kind of, they're slightly scared by it. Well, I, I think for understandable reasons, there are progressives who are anxious about um, patriotism turning into nationalism and, and some of those um, some of those forces, because often, you know, the right have wrapped themselves in the, the far right, um, the dangerous uh, people in history wrap themselves in, in their flag um, as a way of um, pursuing a, a very kind of right-wing agenda. Now, my approach to this has always been that, that we should fight for the flag and, and fight to find what um, patriotism and, and uh, um, pride in your nation means. Uh, and in actual fact, you know, the Second World War and, and taking our nation to war in, in opposition to fascism in defense of um, country, a country, particularly Poland at that time, um, at the time the Second World War started that was um, being overrun, um, was an incredibly progressive uh, gesture to take and uh, far more than a gesture, a decision to take. Um, and, and I think, you know, from my perspective, fighting back against uh, the claiming of our flag and uh, claiming of Englishness by forces um, of the far right is incredibly important for us to do. And actually what Gareth Southgate did was to, to define what patriotism meant to this um, England team 
and I was very proud to follow that uh, definition of, of patriotism, and it absolutely jimes with what I how I understand that. It's just so odd, isn't it, that you know if people fly a Scotland flag, you don't make assumptions about them, or if people fly the Welsh flag, there is something around the England flag that people on the liberal left you know, find slightly repulsive. They're scared when they see it. You know, that probably goes for the Union Jack as well for some of them. How, how does Labour make itself comfortable? I mean, the fact that Gareth Southgate articulated it so well also highlights a bit of a problem that he's operating in a space that successive Labour leaders have basically left open. Or am I, am I being a bit too um, unfair on a couple of Labour leaders. Well, there. I mean, I don't think Keir, St- I think Keir Starmer's not been that open. I mean, you might be be aware, you will be aware, there's been a lot of publicity about the occasions when Keir Starmer's made a speech, Booney and Jack fluttering in, in the background. Um, and, and, you know, I think in conversations I've, I've had with him, he's been a bit bewildered that anyone will be surprised that someone who wants to lead this country would on occasions um, be pictured with, with the national flag uh, in the vicinity. Um, I, I, so I don't think in his regard he's shying away from that. I also think he wants it to be something that is um, largely doesn't need constantly talking about, uh, but is something that, that should be taken as read if you are, are asking um, a country to make you their prime minister that, that broadly are in favour of the country that you want to lead. Um, now, I think in, in terms of, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, to be candid, people would have had a different um, perspective about what his view on patriotism was and, and what his sense uh, of pride in our nation's history was. And I think that's a different, totally different kettle of fish. But I think in ter- to sort of label the entire left as feeling this um, is possibly uh, a, a little bit wrong. I think that um, Keir Starmer's repositioning the party in terms of patriotism. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about in terms of other nations, it is something that we go on holiday and you go to Spain or France or Italy and it's much more commonplace to see people eyeing the flag uh, in, the, in the front gardens. I think in Scotland, as a result of the nationalism movement, independence movement, um, the Scottish flag's becoming, uh, taking on a different meaning also. Um, and I think there's a whole variety of interesting questions about, you know, whether you, you in Scotland would, would consider the saltire or the Union Jack to be your flag and what that says about your politics uh, and your view on constitutional questions and so on. So I, I think for precisely that reason, you know, it's important for progressives to try and define for ourselves what our flags stand for. Um, I think that particularly around the Union Jack and, and what that means, but also um, there's a sort of slightly more complicated devolutionary question about what English means in the context of, of Britain. Uh, and I, I think that with a devolved Scottish and Irish and, and Welsh uh, governments and parliaments, um, English devolution is also a really important question. And, uh, you know, maybe getting into sort of nerdy political talk in all of that. Um, but I think it is all of it important for progressive, for progressive to, to consider, really. Do you think England does have a specific problem with the sorts of nationalism, the sorts of nationalism we have here and the sort of odd mix of 
a hardcore of violent nationalist yobs mixed with a kind of failure from the mainstream to adequately communicate a kind of acceptable form of Englishness that doesn't put other people off? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that it's a peculiarly English um, situation. I think that probably there's nationalist forces uh, in most countries in, in the world. I think that where maybe um, it's been more troubling is, is the sort of prominence that these uh, have, have got through uh, particularly the Brexit debate. Um, and, you know, I mean, if you look into France, you've got, you know, openly far-right politicians, you know, much closer to power than Farage ever got in this country. Um, but you, you know, and I think you could look across a lot of Europe and see the far-right on the rise, and, and, you know, we should be concerned about that. And often nationalism is very close to, the, to that. In, in many ways, the far-right... Uh, in the terms politically are far less successful in England than they are in, in or in Britain than they are in many other countries. Um, but there is a, a resurgence of the far right over the course of the last 10, 15 years. Uh, and here in the UK, uh, I think Brexit debate has particularly um, divided us and um, particularly sort of sullied the political discourse. And I think there is... Uh, and it's because of the Scottish independence referendum, where talking about Englishness um, gets tied up with the debate about Scottish independence and Britishness and what all of these things mean. Um, and we're not often able to have sensible discussions on any of those subjects, unfortunately. It does make it very difficult. I mean, I, I wonder also as well if in... I mean, you have to highlight the racism and it has to be rebutted and shown for the disgusting, appalling thing that it is. But is there a danger sometimes when you're talking about social media and people saying awful things that it can sometimes give a disproportionate view of what general public opinion is? Well, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, if you see how the kind of post... Uh, post-Euro final coverage has been around a lot of Europe. I mean, it has focused on, you know, the voices of a very small number of anonymous social media accounts and then this huge backlash against that. And I think there is a danger that we uh, sort of amplify what are minority voices in many of these things. But you're right, at the same time, you, you know, when you have players like uh, Bakary Saka and Marcus Rashford suffering this kind of racism, they shouldn't be expected to suffer in silence, to just tolerate it. You know, you, you're not as old as I am, but, you know, I mean, I went to four matches in the early 80s when racism was far more universal and far more sort of overt than it is now. And it's important to, you know, be proud of the programme made, but it's also important to say it's not, not an issue anymore. You know, it is still an issue. And social media means that for these players, it's an issue they have to face. And, and Marcus Rashford, he wants to engage with his fan base. And he puts a, a message out on social media. And he then goes to see what people are responding to that. Alongside many, many 
supportive messages after his missed penalty, a crucial penalty uh, in the final. He's also got to read this racist fails from people who hide who behind this sort of cloak of anonymity. And for that reason, there is a responsibility on the social media providers to say we're going to do what we can to protect people who use our platform from being the victims of what is actually a criminal act, you know, the act of that racist um, abuse. So, you know, I think there is, uh, people need to turn to those um, social media providers and say, you know, you could still be doing a lot more to protect people from coming, uh, coming into harm on your, on your networks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And what about the, the alcohol-related violence? I mean, as I say, at every game I went to, you could see... It's also true whenever I go and watch Forest. You know, this isn't like a new thing. It's not unique to go and to watch England at Wembley or abroad. But there are people there that you think, should they have really been allowed in, you know? And I see a lot of, just thinking about the demographics that get involved in this stuff, I see a lot of very impressionable young lads who are drunk, who are, I mean, there are, there are, there are people who are genuinely nasty, who I think, you know, when we talk about education and these things, I think, you know what, some of these people, I mean, I guess Northern Ireland gives us hope, there's always a way, but I do look at some of the people sometimes and think, there is, not a, there is not an amount of education you could give that individual that would change their mind. They feel almost completely lost to this stuff. They are so aggressive. They are so hell-bent on going to football to create trouble. I actually don't know how you reach those people, but there is a whole other group that sort of gravitate to them that are kind of... They are. They're impressionable young lads who think that there's something exciting about behaving like that at football. And maybe they can be reached. I don't know. I'm just, I'm still trying to make sense of it all and, and of the things I saw. And yeah. the vast majority of it was really positive. But it was, I think people, for, not forget, but unless you've been there, you don't appreciate how scary it is when you see even a little bit of aggressive behaviour. Like you don't even need to see a mass brawl. But I was near a guy at the Czech Republic game who, when they took the knee, was on his feet booing, screaming. And then was turning around and picking people out, asking us why we weren't taking the knee. And you just think, why we weren't booing the taking of the knee. And you just think, I'm going to have to sit near this bloke now for an hour and a half and just hope that he doesn't become violent. And you shouldn't have to watch football like that. It shouldn't be part of the experience. You just think, oh, God. You know, and I, obviously, I keep reminding myself, the vast majority of the people around me weren't behaving like that. They all applauded when the team took the knee. But you just think, I, I, I'm trying to... 
I'm just trying to make sense of the different types of people that behave in this way. And I guess the ones that you can reach and perhaps the ones you can't. I, I mean, I, I think I'm just sort of <laughs> rambling along to myself, but there are, I think with football, you get that, don't you? You get these sort of different groups that, that hardcore. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and you can spot them a mile off. This is the thing. Yeah, if you go right, to football, boom. you can spot the trouble courses a mile off. You and I would know. You would come out of a station in any city in Britain and go, they're the ones who are going to cause trouble. Now, obviously, you can't arrest someone yeah, for looking, I mean, you know, dodgy. No, sure, sure. I think that, and in terms of, you know, firstly, division divide. So if you have something, you know, this cultural war, if you create these sort of, um, these these sort of uh, divisive uh, situations, then then people are going to take different sides uh, within that uh, kind of situation. Um, I think that in terms of people being too drunk to attend football matches, if they, if they had breasted entrance to every football match, I'm not sure I'd have got into as many as I have. So, I mean, you, you, let's, let's sort of be a little careful uh, how much we, we police... Um, the sort of combination of having a beer and going to watch football. Um, but, you know, it's all about how you behave. And I think I've referred to, already, you know, there is legislation there that if people are behaving in a violent way, you know, there's footage out there now of people punching other people, kicking them when they're on the ground um, and all those sort of things that happened in the stadium. You know, that is the people who should be reached by um, the police with the benefit of uh, CCTV taken through the courts, give football banning orders and kept away. Now, there are other people who will act in ways that make us uncomfortable, but probably stay shy of breaking the law. And, you know, and probably, you know, there's nothing we can do about the, the extent that they are a part of the experience. And that's the same, you know, we've all been into a certain pub and there's people in there that we weren't in the same pub as and, and you know, that's not sort of unique to football. But where are people who are going there intent on actually um, physical violence? You know, society is much better actually at policing than keeping them away. A combination of policing, CTV. You know, you don't see a lot of that physical violence in football stadiums now. Um, and for that reason, you know, what we've witnessed at Wembley was, was fairly rare. Um, so, but there is also a kind of a right-wing political culture that's attached to football also, um, and particularly attached to the England team, you know, that is, that is very concerning for those of us on the progressive left. And do you think, um, I mean, Gary Neville was saying, I mean, I, I, I guess we just knew it. it didn't immediately occur to me in the stadium when we lost on penalties. But if you were to ask me, do you think those players are now going to be subject to racist abuse online? I would, of course, say, yes, they are depressingly and Gary Neville made the point on Sky Sports that firstly he knew it was going to happen but he also thinks that the things that Boris Johnson have said I, I don't want to misquote him but he, he basically drew a, at the very least a dotted line between the, the comments that the Prime Minister has made in the past and, and, and these things now football hooliganism has existed long before Boris Johnson and far right movements have and, and yobbish behaviour but What's the kind of labour view on this? I mean, it, is it fair to say that there is a connection between those two things in any way? Well, I'll give you my view, and that is that um, I think a green light uh, was given to racists. I think it was a pretty loud dog whistle um, from 
both the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister that was kind of putting pressure on the England football team to stop doing this gesture because they saw it as, you know, as, as out with of the uh, views that the government hold and the government um, have a sort of specific idea as to what the kind of red wall uh, look for. And I'm not sure they've got that right, but I, I think that there was a pretty deliberate tacit, tacit agreement um, about, you know, it, people being okay to boo. And, and I think slightly more broadly, a lot of the tenor of government uh, communications around uh, asylum, around immigration um, and uh, those kind of issues has kind of strengthened the, the resolve of people with racist views. Um, and, you know, so, so there are lots of people that would vote Conservative that wouldn't show, share those views. There'd be lots of people that would vote Brexit that wouldn't share those views. But I think that there was, you know, clearly uh, a message going from government um, to people that was heard. And, and I think that Ty, um, Ty Mings and Gary Neville and others are right to say, you know, you can't feed the fire uh, and then complain when it takes hold. And, and that's, you know, really what has happened here. And so people will come back to the government and say, you know, if you're now saying this racism's wrong, do you take any responsibility? Either the things that Boris Johnson said in the past. And I personally, you know, I will be fine with Boris Johnson coming out and saying, look, I was a journalist and I was an idiot and I said things that I'm now embarrassed about, but I don't deny that I said them. Uh, partly because I was trying to sell um, newspapers and magazines and partly because I had views that have now changed and realised are outdated. I I'd be OK with that. But he's in total denial about the things that he's said in the past, which therefore leads one to consider he must think they're OK still. Uh, and on that basis, um, it, it is reasonable to say you can't criticise racism um, and not disavow the racism you've been a part of the past or that you appear to be giving uh, green light to it now. They seem to have completely misjudged the public mood on taking the knee, Boris Johnson and Priti Patel in particular, and, and saw it as a kind of another part of a wedge issue culture war. And then towards the end of the tournament, started wearing England shirts and posting pictures of themselves. And they basically have been having a go at football. And obviously... Matt Hancock during the pandemic, despite the fact that Jordan Henderson had corralled these Premier League players and the, the actions of Marcus Rashford and many other footballers to do a lot of social good in the, you know, the worst year of everyone's life. Now they're trying to get on the bandwagon. And I think, I wonder if they'll pay a political price for that. Well, who knows? Um, I mean, I sort of wonder when this uh, government's uh, their reckoning's going to come. It's uh, I've been waiting uh, for for a couple of years, particularly now. Um, but I, I think they they did possibly misjudge the mood. Possibly the mood changed. You know, I think that something has happened in this last five weeks, and I think that you know, if I go back even to the time of the Scotland game. You know, and after that Scotland game, there was a pretty negative mood around. How long was that ago? Two and a weeks ago. There was still a pretty negative mood. Um, you know, and it, and wins in football create momentum. And, uh, you know, we, we, we won the, the subsequent uh, four games. Suddenly we're in the final. 
and the right of the players to say something on these issues um, was earned with far more people than it had been at the start. So, you know, I think it's possible that the government made a, a judgment based on what they saw as the mood at the time, but it certainly isn't the mood now. And, you know, maybe like the skillful political operator that he is, Boris Johnson's uh, moved from where he was three weeks ago to where he is today because he recognises that the country's moved. The polling before the tournament was really interesting. YouGov uh, surveyed nearly 5,000 football fans across Europe in, in February and March about whether they supported or opposed taking the knee. In Portugal, 79% of football fans supported taking the knee and 15% opposed. Uh, of ethnic minority Britons, 78% of them support taking the knee with just 12% opposed. And then if you break it down on the home nations that are at the tournament, 54% of England supporters supported taking the knee, 39% didn't. Wales, 53% of supporters supported taking the knee, 37% didn't. Scotland, 49% supported, 42% didn't. Uh, and they say in the UK, support is broadly similar across England, Wales and Scotland. Opposition in the UK is higher amongst Scottish fans, but remains a minority compared to 39% of English fans and 37% of Wales. So actually across the home nations, there are clear majorities in favour of taking the knee, with England oddly having a, well, oddly given some of the coverage and, and perhaps the way we think about ourselves, uh, actually more supportive of, of taking the knee. But, you know, all those things may well be within a margin of error. But nevertheless, the view across Britain amongst football fans was always very clear that they supported taking the knee. And it, it just seemed odd that I, I remember seeing that poll before the tournament and, and wondered whether the Tories had seen it at all or whether they their instincts they thought perhaps trumped that. But that's certainly been my experience with football fans is... I mean, I would say of, of my friends, and I, I realise that is not perhaps a representative sample of uh, of England or wider Britain. The, I would wait. I mean, I would say a hundred percent of them support taking the knee. I mean, you know, I think uh, apart from the people in the in the stadium that booed, and even then, there's no way that was forty percent of them. You know, they they were they're in a minority at Wembley at every game. So I, I kind of think you're right. I think the opposition was already there. The support, sorry, was already there, was already significant. And as the tournament went on, I think you're right, in an odd way, even though whether you're good at football or not should not really transform your opinion on whether they're right to take the knee or not. I guess people warm to them and, and that perhaps helps bring people along. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's interesting statistics. Um, I, um, in terms of the way you read opinion polls, uh, whether someone is in favour or against is only kind of one part of it. Yeah. You know, it's also how strongly people have that view. So mm. so you might have, and I'm not say, talking about this in, in this particular view, but you might have an issue in which 60% of people think something, but of the 35% who don't, 25% of them feel really, really strongly, and it's a kind of defining issue for them. Yes. Whereas the 60% is something that flitters inside and outside the mind. I'm not really talking about the taking the knee issue in that regard, but saying that simply there, you know, there were more people on one side than the other in terms of this question on a certain day might not have been uh, the uh, sort of assessment that the government made. Maybe they didn't even consider the polling, who knows? Um, but whatever it, whatever it is, I think that they played a part um, in, in this division. Uh, and I'm glad that they're now in a position of, of standing by their footballers, but I think they will reasonably be criticised and said, well, you were a part of this. I think probably I'd leave it there. I mean, one major positive 
quite apart from getting to a final. I mean, watching England walk out of final, go ahead in a final, Leeds, you know, all that stuff. Could have won it, no question. You know, they are all massive, massive positives. Um, one thing I really noticed being at the Games was how many more uh, Asian British football fans were there. You know, England sport has always been very white. And uh, it, it was noticeably more diverse this time. And I've been to Wembley a lot to watch England. It is the most diverse I think I've ever seen it. At every game, it was really noticeable. And I, I wondered if the taking the knee thing has helped with that and just the conversations around that and a diverse team and the way Southgate handles things or whether, whether there is something as well, that, whether that's building on and part of wider social changes. Because you, I've certainly felt this time that, you know, when you see people flying the flag and being proud to be English and all the rest of it, it did feel more diverse this time. And oddly, we've ended up having the same conversation about racism and thugs. But there is another part of this that actually the, the, the England's support base felt a lot more diverse. I mean, I don't know if there's any statistical thing to, to, that's purely anecdotal from my own experience, but it was really noticeable. And that, that's, that's a hugely positive thing. You, you hope that um, all this doesn't undo that. Oh, absolutely. I'd be really interested to know statistically whether um, black ethnic minority uh, football fans felt more um, in tune with this England team as a result, whether, whether as a result or for whatever reason, than, um, than has been the case in the past. Certainly, I've been to England games where I, I would have, where the number of um, non-white faces there in the England port was, was pretty small. Um, and, you know, if, if it is happening in the way you describe, which, you know, I also witnessed, then I think that's an incredibly positive thing. I think it'd be a very worthwhile thing for them to be some, for them to be some holding on and to get a sense of whether um, the dialogue that there was around this has, and this is more of a team for everyone. Um, and certainly I think the, the sort of reaction to the racism that those footballers faced uh, is incredibly powerful. And I, I hope that they really feel the sense of support there is across the nation. We are all in this fight with them, but they're not going to fight this alone. Um, and it's really important that we've had, um, you know, sort of leading white players coming out and, and, and being really, uh, making it clear this isn't a fight that the black players are, are going to have to fight on their own. So, you know, I, I hope some real good can come from this. Um, and, and it is important we're talking about it. You know, it shouldn't be swept under the carpet. So, yeah, there's a lot of real benefit from it. And it has changed a lot. I mean, I know you say I'm not as old as you. I probably look older. But some of the games I used to go to, even in the 90s, at Forest, the racism was everywhere. In, like, mass chanting, awful things that Forest fans would chant when we played Leicester City. And racism targeted sometimes at our own black players. And, and that... Even as a kid, I just couldn't believe basically nothing. It felt like nothing was done about it. Now, from that, obviously, to where we are, I guess is a form of progress, but you can't really... It feels odd to kind of recognise that because then it feels like you're saying, well, some good's been done, but then if it still exists, but it's online or it comes elsewhere, then I really... I really struggle to get a sense of whether we've made progress or not. And I kind of think we have. 
But uh, am I just kidding myself? Nothing. And is the, is the racism just elsewhere now? No, and it expresses no, something I, I, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think we've made massive progress. Um, I mean, our, my recollection is that by the 90s, we were through the worst of it. You know, uh, I certainly remember in the sort of mid-80s, early 80s, um, you know, that kind of mass chanting, um, monkey noises, throwing bananas, all, all of that, that um, black players being booed when their names are read out, the sense that it's kind of okay to boo the opposition's black players, but you support your own, um, you know, that was absolutely commonplace. Um, and, you know, it would be commonplace now. It would not be, you know, when, when it, the England team or English teams ha have gone and played uh, in Eastern Europe and face that kind of racism, it comes as a, an absolute bolt from the blue because, you know, it is an overt uh, racism. And I think it's really important to recognise the progress that's been made and to recognise the sort of depth that we all have to those players that shouldered the burden in the 70s and 80s when, when that appalling racism uh, existed. So we should absolutely recognise that progress. But we should also recognise that we're nowhere near having resolved this issue, and that whether that be the social media online, whether that be on comments, um, comments shouted from uh, fans of black players who were taking a throw in a corner, whether that be... Um, more subtle forms of racism, but things like black players make it, finding it much more difficult to get managerial jobs um, or, uh, or whether, you know, it, the proportion of black players getting um, taken on uh, or whatever it might be. I mean, it's, you know, very significant number of black players. But, but I think we should recognise that racism takes many different forms. So, so I think it should be absolutely fine to say, Look at the massive progress that's been made, but look at the massive steps we still need to make um, and, and not, not consider there's any sort of contradiction in that. Just returning to the football side of it, I mean, I've actually felt more positive the day after. I thought, you know what, we got to a final, what a ride, you know, we're there till the end further than we've ever been, and now actually today. I don't know whether it is because there are more articles out there about all the trouble and everything and the racism and whether actually that's now clouding my judgment about the football element, but I feel sadder today than I did. I mean, I, I don't know if you have any yeah. coping tips or how you've dealt with it. Oh, no, I'm not sure I can help with that, but, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I'm quite the same. I mean, I absolutely... Um, was thrilled that we made the final. Uh, winning the semi-final is incredibly important to me. We've never in my lifetime reached a final, major final. This time we have. I think we're up against the best side in the tournament. I can take losing. Um, but <laughs> it was a It really was. You know, yeah. Spidola getting injured at the end of the Spain game. Um, Chiesa getting injured 20 minutes before the end. That was the best two players they got gone um and I, I really saw i mean and we led and i felt like we came out at half to, in the second half and just said get 10 behind the ball will be hard to break down and it felt like it was 20 i don't know how long it was exactly but 20 25 minutes from the, the, the start of the second half them scoring where their goal was was feeling in, increasingly inevitable and yet weren't really changing what we were doing. And, and you know, I'm frustrated by that. 
I also am massively frustrated that uh, we've saved two penalties and still lost on penalties. You know, it, it, I, I think Pickford's save uh, from Jorginho in that second penalty. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you were there at the ground. I was watching on television and the cameras were showing a close-up on him. And he said to himself, no problem. He's, he's facing, I think, probably one of the best penalty takers in world football. Yeah. And yet, when the entire game's online, he pulled that save out. And the drama of that moment, saving it, it bounced against the post, bounced back into his arms. You know, within a minute, all that was forgotten. And it's tragic, really, for Jordan Pickford that what should have been this moment that really sort of put him in the nation's heart was, was lost by uh, Saka missing the next penalty a minute later. Um, I, I also have to say, you know, I was disappointed with the, with the penalties we missed. Sometimes you take a good penalty and it misses. You know, the keeper saves it. It can happen. But I actually, you know, obviously Russia missed the target. Uh, Sando and, and Saka went for these kind of, kind of stuttery run-up. You know, they look great when they're up in the back of the net. But my view on a penalty is always, I want one that's got a chance of going in, even if the keeper, keeper dives the wrong way. If, if you're taking a penalty that will only work if the keeper dives the wrong way, you're in trouble already. And you look at Kane and Maguire's penalties, to me, that's how you take a penalty. Um, so I do feel, uh, on a football, football perspective, that a combination of the fantastic draw that we had you know, we, we got, you know, we got the deep, you know, if you could have said a pretty below par German side, Ukraine and Denmark was the path from the group to the final. Any one of us would have taken that. You know, we got to the final. We played an Italian team, robbed of um, probably two of their best players by the end of it. A very, very good team, but, but nonetheless. Uh, and our keeper saved two of the five penalties. You know, that is a situation that should have come together to lead to England lifting, lifting the trophy. So, you know, we had a massive achievement up there. But um, Napoleon, as we always used to say, you know, don't show me a good general, show me a lucky one. And in two competitions, Gareth Southgate has been a lucky general in the draws that he's had. And uh, for us to have the draws we've had in the last two competitions, um, and, and I feel that, you know, we will look back on these as missed opportunities without in any way taking away the credit that this team deserved for the achievement they've made. And it shouldn't be just defined by the final moments. They gave us a summer like no other. You know, those hot nights at Wembley, singing Sweet Caroline after the Germany game, after the Denmark game, the atmosphere in the stadium before kickoff the other night. And the whole country was there with it. You know, it was just an amazing ride. And you don't, those things aren't erased you know, we will look back. I mean, I remember how I felt after Euro 96, just distraught. We didn't even get to the final of that. And now my generation eulogises that, that magical tournament. We didn't even get to the final. I think fairly soon we'll look back on this as an amazing thing. And it's still, to be fair to Southgate, semi-final of the World Cup, followed by the final of the Euros. He is the most successful manager now since Alf Ramsey. Yep. There is a sense that there's this incremental building. And Foden didn't get a look in. I know he was injured for the final, but some of the play- he was the player I was most excited about. And I wonder now whether Southgate, as well as, you know, building on uh, correctly, being hard to score against, perhaps just allows a little more attacking football. And at the next tournament, which is just over a year away, yeah. the World Cup in Qatar, whether we whether actually yeah, you know, absolutely. He learns and we get something just that bit better that maybe wins something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I absolutely agree with you that, you know, they give us a fantastic tournament. The way that they've represented themselves on the pitch and off the pitch has been fantastic at time and the entire uh, country needed a, a pick. I, I think that they've been more than just a, a really successful football team. I think they have offered, you know, real social leadership. Um, and, and I don't in any way want to take away from that that uh, fantastic credit that we should get. Um, and, you know, Gareth Southgate went to uh, Russia in 2018 as a fairly inexperienced manager. I mean, it was, you know, I think we've ever had an England manager with um, uh, so little, you know, top flight managerial experience for getting and he's learning on the job. And I think he's, he's a, you know, a fantastic guy. And I think he's, he's doing really well. Um, so I don't want to in any way uh, sort of undermine that. Um, whilst all recognising, I feel it's a, you know, it is something we'll look back on and regret. But you're right, you know, Nike, we eulogise that, and I think we will in time come to eulogise the the progress we made. I mean, that four victory over Ukraine was amazing. Uh, the Denmark game, you know, superb. And you know, the, the final analysis, we were one penalty away from beating a very, very, very good Italian side. You know, unbeaten 34 games. Uh, we almost beat them. And, uh, you know, so we, this was a really good side that have really performed at an international world-class level. And it is it's so hard for the players that... Was, I mean, obviously, we all think of Rashford just because of what an amazing man he's been for the country. Off the pitch! And he sends the keeper the wrong way, and you think, oh, my God, an inch to the right! And we probably win the tournament. But, you know, Gazza's boot in 96, Anderson it in the post, Sol Campbell's ruled out goal. It, it joins it joins the history that will make any eventual victory far sweeter. And when you see what it did for Southgate, you know, years later, you know, you'd have looked at that Euro 96 starting line. If you had to pick future England managers, you'd have probably said Stuart Pearce, maybe Adams, maybe Platt. Southgate very possibly would have been the last name you'd have guessed. And, you know, he's, he's ended up being an amazing leader. So sometimes those moments are the making of people. Um, but my God. I still just, you know, what? OK, what about just in closing then? I mean, Gareth Southgate and Marcus Rashford and many of the others. Maybe I'm just overthinking this. Feel like kind of modern Labour people. They feel like, you know. I always think of Tony Blair doing head tennis with Kevin Keegan and, uh, you know, being in his uh, training gear with Alex Ferguson. Kirsten was a big football fan. I mean, surely he must have had a word with Marcus and Gareth and said, you know, do you fancy a game of head tennis for a, for well, a Labour Party photo call? <laughs> I mean, I certainly, you know, I'd be very happy to welcome them. I want to claim them without their permission. Um, but they certainly have, have displayed values that I feel are, you know, modern Labour values and, and they've shown progressive leadership. I think it's important that they had, you know, their political neutrality has given them permission to be heard in a way that a politician wouldn't experience. And Marcus Rashford has done incredible good um, through being seen to work with politicians of any side in order to pursue a particular agenda. And I think it's, it's very sensible for them to uh, retain that ability to have that power by being political, but party political. Um, 
if at some point in their future uh, they wanted to hang up their uh, their boots or their waistcoat and come and join me on the Labour benches in Parliament, they'd be absolutely welcome. Um, but they're doing real good um, in the meantime uh, for the country in the way that they're performing the jobs they do. And absolutely, finally, are, are we? I mean, we'd have to be one of the favourites to win the World Cup now. I mean. The, the danger, you know, my fear is, and I felt the same after the semi-final loss against Croatia, think, oh, that's probably the closest we're going to get, and that was a massive missed opportunity. And I feel that again. Getting to a final is so hard. You think the thought of climbing Everest a second time, you think, oh, my word, what's the likelihood? But how do you feel as a football fan about our chances in, I mean, we talk about, you know, regressive values around football at the Qatar World Cup in 2022. I mean, I think that, you know, firstly, European teams in general struggled in when it hasn't been in Europe. Uh, Germany obviously won the World Cup in Brazil, so maybe that's, that's changing. I think we go there. Um, I think we've got every potential going there as a serious contender. But, you know, we, we also need to be realistic. Um, we got to the final without playing France, Portugal, Belgium, Italy... Spain, the vast majority of the top sides were in the other half of the draw. Um, and we were at home. Um, and, and, you know, we ended up getting a draw with Italy in the final. And, and I think we go there as a serious contender, but no more than that. You then put Brazil and Argentina and uh, into the mix. Uh, other countries that are kind of more used to playing in 35, 40 degrees. Um, that puts a real sort of premium on technical ability and makes your ability to run, uh, you know, however many uh, metres in, in in a day that we would, you know, premiership footballers would naturally do in, in 15 degrees more difficult. So I think this challenge is there. Um, but, you know, that, that sort of tomorrow's problem, qualify first, which I think we will do. Uh, and then I think we'll go as serious contenders, but I don't think we should take those... You know, I think we have a, a tendency in the country to go from sort of despair to complacency without ever really stopping in the middle. <laughs> and the reality is we'll be one of seven or eight teams that have got a real chance, but there's other sides with a really strong squad um, that will also be, be competitive and will be very tough to beat. It's a very balanced, thoughtful way of thinking about it, Toby. Thank you so much for coming on and hopefully helping us all deal with... Uh, just the emotional distress of the last few Well, there you go, Toby Perkins. I'm not sure how many questions I actually asked him now. I think I was just, I think I just needed someone to talk to, but it was good picking Toby's brain. He made some brilliant points. And um, I think, <sighs> I still, I still don't know how to feel about it all. Um, I'm just heartened by the fact that most people are really good, but just disgusted by that minority. I'm really, really sad about it. And it, obviously it's kind of overshadowed what really should have been a conversation just about football. We should just be talking about, oh my God, they got to a final and the things we should be discussing are, could, should we have won it or not? Um, instead, sadly... As England, we are having a conversation that we've had periodically throughout our history about the conduct of some of our supporters and the racism of some of them. And that is just appalling. Um, but that conversation has to be had. And uh, I don't know whether this podcast has helped in any way. Toby was, you know, really thoughtful. 
Um, clearly thought about a lot of this stuff in detail and uh, it gave some very good answers because I think perhaps I might stray towards not authoritarianism, but I think if you boo the knee, why are you there? I, I kind of can't shake that. Um, but anyway, this is uh, an emotionally confused <laughs> episode of the podcast, trying to stay positive when uh, 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 so much of it makes you feel negative. But uh, I hope in the end that it has made you feel positive um, and that somehow, somehow it's made sense of at least some of it. Um, so anyway, there we go. Um, apologies for the brief break in service over the last couple of weeks the show is back i've got some great guests coming up email the show politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com don't forget to include any stories of your embarrassing encounters with politicians and i'll see you next time hopefully at some point it will come home but until then ta Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.